All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. <clears throat> Micah chapter 5. Sounds like a great opportunity, by the way, to be able to share the gospel with someone in a prolonged fashion. We'll be praying that God uses this ministry and uh, members in our church to reach out and to see someone come to know the Lord. <clears throat> um, it's a pleasure to consider another important Old Testament passage that points forward to Jesus this morning. Uh, you can, as I said, turn to Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament uh, portion of your scriptures. Um, it's important for us to consider how valuable Jesus is at all times of our life, but it's my hope that during the Christmas season, for these five weeks, as we prepare ourselves by lo looking at these texts, we prepare ourselves for Christmas, uh, that God will deepen our understanding of what Jesus has done for us in being born, and then in his ministry, in his life, death, uh, and resurrection to us. And that um, as we look at this text today, we'll stop to reflect on the special meaning uh, that the sermon text can bring to Christmas this season. <clears throat> now, I am not just <clears throat> pulling out my favorite Old Testament passages to point forward to Jesus. What I did um, for these next four texts is uh, I have looked at uh, texts that are quoted in the New Testament scripture regarding the birth of Jesus. Um, this text was quoted uh, when King Herod... <clears throat> was anxious, and so was all Jerusalem. They were all troubled about what was going on, so they assembled the religious experts, the chief priests and the scribes, and they inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And the scribes and Pharisees uh, allude to this passage in Micah chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, it says, They told him... In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so we're going to consider the source text. We're going to go back to Micah chapter 5 and look at the greater context and situation so that we can get a better um, appreciation for Christ this Christmas. So as you're thinking of Matthew chap or Micah chapter 5, uh, I need to give you a little bit of background information uh, regarding the book. Again, I've been studying Micah for a few weeks now, so i got all this stuff I want to give to you. I can't give it all to you. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of background that will make you helpful, uh, make, make, make you understand this a bit more. First of all... Um, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so when you're thinking of Micah as we're working through this, he lived and ministered at the same time specifically to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. Micah is from uh, a small country village named Moresheth. Okay, so he's a country rural prophet. Moresheth is 25 or was 25 miles southwest of the capital city of Jerusalem, where Micah's ministry um, and prophetic oracles were primarily given in Jerusalem. The book of Micah consists of many oracles. 
Uh, Some scholars have counted up to 20 oracles across the seven chapters of Micah. Uh, But it seems to me that these independent prophetic utterances were arranged by Micah into three large oracles that are each triggered with a key word. So if you've got your Bible open in Micah, look at Micah 1 and verse 2. The word you look for is the word here. Okay, the word here. So in verse 2, Here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. Okay. So there are three major prophetic oracles. They all start with the word here, and then you find out who the prophet is addressing in the major section. So the first oracle goes from Micah 1 to, uh, through the end of chapter 2. You look at chapter 3 in your Bible. It says, And I said, verse 1, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And so then for three chapters, chapters 3, 4, and 5, there's a large prophetic utterance that Micah pulls together from different prophecies that he's given uh, to the rulers of Judah and Jerusalem. And then you look uh, for the last one, if you've done the math, the end of chapter 5. What starts after the end of chapter 5? Beginning of chapter 6. Verse 1, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Chapters 6 and 7 are a third prophetic oracle from Micah uh, to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, He's addressing the mountains and hills and calling them to be witness against my people, uh, the people of Israel, or people of Judah. Uh, Now, the mixed nature of the oracles uh, is something you should also keep in mind. So, you've got the book divided into three sections, right? Okay. But then each section starts with words of judgment. Those normally go for quite a while. And then there's a transition within the section to words of salvation or deliverance. Okay, so you've got words of judgment, each section words of salvation. Okay. Now, the mixed nature of these is necessary because of two things. The disobedience of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, that's why you have all of the threats the warnings, the words of judgment. But then uh, the, 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 the mixed nature, the salvation part is necessary because of the reforms that are beginning to happen among the people led by a king, and his name is King Hezekiah. Okay, again, I'm just giving you as much, you know, I could give you a lot more, but I'm just giving you enough to make you dangerous, uh, well, hopefully not dangerous, uh, in the book of Micah. During Hezekiah's ministry, King Hezekiah of Judah and Jerusalem, Assyria had swept through the Holy Land. They had utterly devastated the northern kingdom. They had taken the the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and they had begun wiping out the plains and the hill countries of Judah, and they were were, kind of narrowing in their focus to Jerusalem, the last stronghold to be taken in the southern kingdom. King Sennacherib of Assyria pushed the Jewish people back into Jerusalem and had given them an ultimatum. He said, you either surrender or die. If you know other scripture passages, you'll know how King Hezekiah responded to that letter from King Sennacherib. He takes that letter, 
into the temple. I love this, don't you? It's in 2 Kings 19. He takes that temple, er, that letter, into the, the temple. He lays it out before God, and in prayer, he asks the Lord to rescue him and the people of Judah so that, and this is a quote, all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Okay. Takes this very fearful letter. He puts it in the temple. He reads it. He asks God to deliver him. And then you could read that it was that very night that the Lord, through an angel, killed 185 Assyrian soldiers overnight. That's the backdrop of the book of Micah. And Micah's strong words of warning, prophetic warning, where he's warning them to turn to the Lord, not trust in other resources, and then his words of hope um, that if they will turn to the Lord. Okay, so at the beginning of Micah 5, I think you'll feel both a warning and promise hope. I want to read just verses 1 through 6. That's all we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 6, uh, to try to make sense uh, out of what Micah is saying here. Look at verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our lands and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of, the, of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Okay, so these verses... Verses 1 through 6 come in two uneven parts. Verse 1 is the threat. Verses 2 through 6 is the future hope. Okay, present threat, a future hope. Okay, now you got that. You don't need to pay attention to the rest of the sermon. You can figure it out, right? Now, let's, let's, let's focus because there's a lot of challenging things within this passage. First, the threat. The threat, verse 1, we learn at the very beginning, is now. It's present. Micah says, muster or marshal your troops together. And then, I believe he calls the beleaguered city of Jerusalem to do so. He calls them, O daughter of troops. Okay, now, O daughter, if you're reading in Micah, is a a phrase that he uses about Jerusalem over and over again. He keeps calling them daughter. 
One text, O daughter. Another text, O daughter of Zion. Here it's, O daughter of troops. Okay. I think he's describing Jerusalem. They are to marshal their troops together. Now, I think he calls them troops because he's, he's calling them to battle. And it's interesting that the word troops, as opposed to the word army, uh, speaks of something insignificant. Now, I'm not in the military. You know, I wish I were, you know, seeing in a military city like ours, you know, just the, the heritage and, and what God is doing through you all. But, you know, so I, I hesitate to say too much about this. Okay. However, I think by using the word troop instead of armies, he's pointing out how insignificant and small their resources are in Jerusalem. It's nothing compared to the armies of Assyria. Marshal or muster together your troops. Why? Because siege is laid against us. And then he continues, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Assyria is prepared to strike the judge or the ruler of Jerusalem on the cheek humiliating him or insulting him as a final act of warfare. Like, this is what you did. Sometimes you'd even take his own scepter away from him. And you smack him on the cheek as the final act of victory over the fallen city or country. So it's a pending threat on King Hezekiah. The Assyrians are prepared to utterly subject him. Now, all of this does not happen to him, as we've already, I kind of already gave it out, gave it away, right? The, remember the, the whole part of laying the letter in front of the Lord, 185,000 Assyrians are struck captive. Uh, ironically, however, about 150 years after this, there's a king named Zedekiah who is conquered by Babylon, and what they do is they take his scepter, they strike him on the cheek, and they blind him. And send him away into captivity. In verse 1 here, though, it's a pending threat and a warning for the people of Judah and Jerusalem as they're holed up in the city awaiting the intervention of God. That's the threat. Now the words of hope and future deliverance come in verses 2 through 6. And these words revolve around a ruler who is going to come in the distant future, who will help them. Now, verses 2 through 6, there's one key I think I can give you for this passage to begin to really open up for you. Okay, In verses 2 through 6, there are two sections of future hope. Okay, One deals with the distant future. That's verses 2 through 5a. Okay, And that hope is built about around a future ruler who will come to deliver the people. Okay. But then, the, the second part of the key is in verses 5b and verse 6. There is also hope for the immediate future. Okay, so distant future, a ruler's coming, and he's going to make everything better. But for your immediate future, verses 5b through 6, their hope will be in God as God uses under shepherds, seven or eight under shepherds and princes to help the people, okay? So that's how we're going to walk through this. We're going to point you to Jesus uh, as we do that, okay? 
So, the hope of a ruler in the distant future. Verses 2 through 5a. Um, we've already read the text. Now, to better understand this a little bit, you need to know that verse 3 is a parenthetical comment. There's a parenthesis here. It says, if you look down at verse 3, that he will give over the people. That, that's speaking in reference to Yahweh, to God. God will give over the people until the time when a woman gives birth. Okay, so we're talking there. Distant future, God's going to give over the people until the time a woman gives birth. Now, in the previous chapter, he had used that language of a woman giving birth about Jerusalem and Judea. Okay, so look at verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9b. Has your counselor perished? I'm starting right in the middle of the verse. Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? Look at verse 10, beginning of the verse. Rise and groan, O daughter, right, Jerusalem, of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will go out from the city. Right, so in verse 3 of chapter 5, God will give the people over to captivity until the birth of a child then all the people will return to the land. All the brothers will return to the land at that moment. Now, it's at this point that we might begin to realize, especially those of us who are Christians, that this might be in reference to the future birth of Jesus. Right? And so what I want to do is I want to look a little closer at verse 2 to see if the birth of Jesus fulfills everything that this passage is talking about. Okay? Okay? First, in verse 2, Micah begins by saying that this future ruler who will be born will come out of a little town of insignificance, and then he names the town, Bethlehem Ephratah. Okay, now, verse 2 is actually words from God, Yahweh, to the city of Bethlehem. Okay, you can see this in address. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah. Okay, and... And so uh, then we need to, to, to figure out a little bit more about this prediction of a ruler being born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Ephrata is a word that means fruitful, and it was the more ancient name of the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means, if you know, house of bread. Okay, good. Some of you are Hebrew experts out there. I heard at least one person say that, house of bread. So fruitful and house of bread. Ephrata is placed here to distinguish Bethlehem from all the other little Bethlehems in that part of the world. That time. Bethlehem, Ephrata. This town was too little to be recognized among the families or clans of Judah. It was very small and quite insignificant, yet this future ruler will be born in this little town. Right? God's going to bring this powerful future ruler into the world through this little town in the middle of nowhere. Okay? And isn't that often how God works? Right? He chooses the lowly, the insignificant, uh, the weak. I, I could quote 1 Corinthians 1 with you again. And he does so so that no human being, or in this case, no town, might boast in the presence of God. This is 
lowly, little Bethlehem who couldn't even count as a clan uh, in, the people of Id- in the people of Judah. Now, when these people hear of a king coming out of Bethlehem, of whom do you think they're going to be thinking? They'll likely think back to a very powerful king, right, who, who led and brought the country to great significance. That powerful king who was born or from Bethlehem was King David. Okay, so like when they're reading this, it might not be built into your DNA as you're reading this. From you, Bethlehem Ephrathah is going to come a ruler, a king. They'll be thinking David, or they might think David-like because of 1 Samuel chapter 7, right, where God gives David covenant promises that there will come from his line an anointed one who will deliver the people of Israel. I think that they would be uh, seeing this as this future ruler as a greater and better David who's going to come in great strength, strength that's never been seen before in Israel, and to deliver the people. And uh, men and women, this part of the prophecy, Jesus fulfills, okay? Over 700 years after Micah gives this prophetic utterance, and it's recorded in this book, Mary and Joseph are making their, remember, they make their way back to Bethlehem because of a census. And Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem. Okay, so check number one. Jesus fulfills that part. Now, Micah continues by saying, verse two, this ruler will come forth his coming forth will be from of old, from ancient of days. See that, verse 2? From of old, from ancient of days. With this expression, we learn that this birth will be spectacular, or maybe a better way of saying it is that it will be supernatural. This baby comes out from antiquity, from the distant past. He predates history. This is strange, strange language for Micah to use about a very unusual baby going to be born. And from my perspective, with these two characteristics, it seems that Micah is using uh, ancient language to describe something that we as Christians have come to hold and accept, and that is that Jesus would be fully human of Bethlehem. I mean, does it get any more human and lowly than that? And from ancient days, of, of old, uh, uh, from of old, uh, fully divine. Fully divine. Fully human, fully divine in one person, Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus Christ fulfills this. What, by the way, you know, what a reliable, dependent, inerrant word that we have in the Scripture. 700 years before this, Micah predicts, that there'll be a person who comes from ancient of days, from of old, and he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem, Africa. So, what does Christmas mean to you? One thing Christmas should mean to us is the confirmation of promises offered in our scripture, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
What does Christmas mean for you? Fulfillment. Promises achieved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now finally, I want you to also note in verse 2, the text says that God says, this ruler will come from you, Bethlehem uh, Ephrata, for me. You see that? For me. That is, this future ruler will be for Yahweh. He will do God's will. Um, I think, again, that this refers forward to the ruler, Jesus, who will come in the name of God. I can't help but think of what Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus reigning and ruling until everything is subjected to God, and then he hands the kingdom back over to the Father. Verse 28 says uh, of chapter 15 there, it says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God, who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Jesus reigns and rules, and he subordinates all these alien powers until the time when it's all finished, and then he hands the kingdom to God so that he would be all things to all created beings. All created objects. God would be all in all. So I think uh, Jesus is fulfilling this. But I want you to go uh, and look at our text again. Look at verse 4. We've dealt with verse 3 a little bit. Next we'll see what Micah says this ruler will do. And we'll continue to ask, did Jesus fulfill these things? So far he's, he's checking all the boxes. What will he do? Well, in verse 4 we learn that he will stand and will shepherd the flock in the strength of Yahweh. I think this is in sharp contrast to the judge ruler. Right, that judge ruler king guy who's going to be smitten on the cheek with a staff. Not this one. No, this one will stand and he will shepherd the people. It's interesting to me that in the three big oracles of the book of Micah, remember it's all around that, when you get to the salvation part in every one of those oracles, he uses the language of a shepherd. A shepherd comes to help the people or the remnant. And here he uses that, I believe, in about this ruler. It's powerful imagery. It's one who's going to come and he's going to care for and feed and lead and protect the people. They will be secure, as the text says, because the end of verse 4 says, because this king's greatness will go out to the ends of the earth. Be secure. Uh, but there's a little bit more in verse 5. We uh, also learn that this king will, will be their peace. Uh, I've highlighted this phrase in my Bible. And this one phrase in verse 5 has kind of perplexed me all week. I mean, I think I get it at a certain level, but I think there's like a deeper sort of significance than I'm, that I normally would process here. Verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Okay, again, what's going on? Micah is predicting in the distant future there's going to come a ruler. He's going to come out of Bethlehem, Ephrata. He's going to stand and he's going to shepherd you and you're going to be secure. You're going to be so secure that this person will be your peace. Okay, and that significance of that I think can only be understood as we stop and we kind of meditate on that phrase for a while. Okay, First of all, I want you to see he doesn't say he will bring you peace. He says he himself will be it. Okay, now, how do I understand that? Someone being peace. Okay, and the only way I could think about 
trying to get a deeper grasp in my little mind this morning, this week, would be to do a few things. First, define peace. Okay, what is peace? Well, that word is used all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, especially the word shalom. Um, uh, the word peace uh, means more than simply absence of war or hostility. Shalom means, or connotes, or brings with it the idea of security and prosperity. Maybe you've heard it translated well-being. Okay? But as you read and look at this word in the Old Testament Scriptures, you see it's not just physical well-being. It's not just like protection against the Assyrian or the Babylonian ruler. Okay, although that's a big part of it here. Political rest, well-being. But as you look through the Scriptures, you say that true peace also involves internal spiritual peace. See, there's another sort of enmity and hostility that the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and people in our world today experience. And that is the animosity that a holy God has against our sin and our transgressions. According to Scripture, true peace means absence of hostility with God. True peace means that our sins and our transgressions are dealt with so that we can enjoy God again. I mean, how can you actually say that you have peace fully and completely unless you have peace with the Creator God, according to Scripture? Okay, and so this is the definition of peace. But notice again where our text says God's people will find peace. It says that they will find it in this ruler who will be with them, who will stand in their midst and shepherd them. Remember the original context again. These people are distraught. Things are being taken away from them, one piece after another. The armies of Assyria are closing in. I'm sure they're disturbed. I'm sure some in the city would be hysterical in their fear. But they will find their peace in this ruler when he comes they will experience security and prosperity and absence of hostility with others and with God. It's more than the Assyrian. And even in the book of Micah, it's also my sin and transgression. Matter of fact, this is where the book ends. I said I wouldn't preach the whole book to you. I won't. Okay. But at the end, look at Micah 7. And verses 18 to 19. When we talk about true peace, it's this internal spiritual well-being. Micah 7, 18. Who's a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. See, when this ruler comes, there will be true peace for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Not just the Assyrian, but the enmity that sin and death and wrath, the wrath of God brings. So in a moment of application, I ask you, Christian, if you know Christ, 
Where do you find peace? The tumult of our own day is quite disturbing. We're not holed up in the city of Jerusalem, but sometimes I kind of want to hole up. World conditions are quite perplexing. There's much hostility and confusion. Listen, a few weeks ago, I was within one mile of two shootings, mass shootings. Remember, I was in Colorado City. And the night that I was there, I fell asleep in my motel, you know, comfortably and safely, but a mile away. Someone was shooting up a a nightclub. Then I come back here, right, feeling I'll be safe, right, in my own home. Within a mile or two of my home, in Greenbrier, at Walmart, someone shoots up that city. We are living in the midst of hostility. Bitterness. People have rejected the truth of God, exchanged it for their own truth, and the end result is intolerance, abuse of each other, canceling of one another, bitter antagonisms, shootings. Where will our peace in the midst of all of this be found? This ancient ruler who came. He made a means of forgiving our sins. The tumult of your own life situation may make many of you distraught as well. But again, I ask you, Christian, where will you find your peace? You realize that there's nothing in your life that your king is not lord over. There's no illness that you experience, no disaster that you personally walk through, nothing in this life is outside of the control of your Lord and King. He is our peace, even in the midst of these sort of challenges. There's no one in your life that your King is not Lord over. Perhaps we should ask you, who are you afraid of? Maybe it's not the Assyrians. What person at work, what person in your home is unsettling to you? What letter or email or text could you spread out before the Lord? And pray to him about his deliverance. In the midst of all these, our Jesus, who came to fulfill these ancient prophecies, he secures and leads and provides for us as well. That's the true meaning of Christmas, by the way. True meaning of Christmas is well-being, freedom from my sin and its consequences. Not necessarily political freedom. I'm not concerned as much about the Assyrian today. But I'm concerned about sin, death, wrath. And our ruler defeated all of those for us so that we can have well-being with God. That's a ruler-shepherd to be proud of. That's our hope. He is our peace. And for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, that's their ultimate solution. Um, And it seems to me that he fulfills these things for them, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, in his two comings. In his first coming, he's born in Bethlehem. He lives, he dies on a cross, but he is risen so that they could have that Uh, spiritual,
peace and well-being. But there's another coming for Jesus where he will return and he'll also bring about many of these physical blessings described here. He'll, he'll fulfill them all, right, during a millennial kingdom with the people of Israel. I, I don't have time to preach the whole book again, but um, let me just let you read with me a few verses in chapter 4, which talks, I think, about some of these future things that God will do for Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. First, in verses 1 through 4, God will set up his house, his temple, for them. Verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. The people shall flow to it. Okay, so when is this? People flowing to the house of God. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They're no longer going to be concerned about war anymore. When this one comes and he reigns in Jerusalem, I think this is describing the second coming of Jesus, when he will come in the future to deliver and care for Israel and the world. Continue reading. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. When does that happen? It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. What a luxurious uh, living that'll be, right? Sitting under vines and under fig trees, not afraid of any person. Because this ruler has come, established his kingdom. Go down to verse 11. Again, I can't, you just need to study Micah, okay? Chapter 4, verse 11, God is going to cut down. Verse, verse 11, he has many nations gathering around Jerusalem and Judea. Here in this context, it's just as serious. This is pointing to something forward. Verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our gaze be upon Zion. It's like looking at the nakedness of Zion, Jerusalem. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Listen, the hope of Judah and Jerusalem comes in two stages here, kind of. It's, it's some in the future, in the distant future. There will be a ruler who will come and deliver you. Okay, and I think that, again, what we just read in chapter 4 is looking forward to that kingdom that Jesus sets up, where he reigns and rules in this earth for a thousand years. Now back in Micah 5, we've got to finish this text out. He turns his attention to the hope that these people can experience in the immediate future, verse 5b and verse 6. Look with me at those verses. So I, I think he's transitioning now to their immediate future, their pending situation, and what's going to happen. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. 
Okay, so I think these are human rulers that will come out of man from men. Seven and eight, I think, is just a reference. There could be a whole lot of these rulers that will come. Verse six, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. It's going to be powerful themselves. And the land of Nimrod at its entrances, Nimrod being, I think, under Assyrian rule at that time, it will become part of Babylon, it leads city of Babylon. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian, that's God, and God shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he, the Assyrian, comes into our lands and treads within our borders. These shepherds and rulers of the people of Israel, God will raise up to, and he will help them be strong to deliver God's people from the Assyrians. They will shepherd the Assyrians themselves with a sword. Today, we have looked at God's love for Judah and Jerusalem, his people, by extension also the Israelite people. There is a future for Israel, whether it speaks of their immediate future or their distant future. And if they can trust God, then we can as well. If they can trust God to deliver them and to provide a ruler like them, like this that will rescue them, we as well can trust him. May we have confidence in our Prince of Peace as well today. As we consider the meaning of Christmas, may we know that what it means for us, for those of us who have believed in the name of Jesus, it means well-being, peace with God and others, brought to us through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.